Welcome back to Investment Matters, the Newton Investment Management Podcast. I'm Matt Goodburn from the Investment Communications team. And today I'm delighted to be joined once again by Elizabeth Davis, a member of our investigative research team over in Boston. Thank you, Matt. It's great to be back. It's good to have you back here as well. So just as a recap, we like to talk about various different topics on the podcast. We look at the macro and the micro themes. And we also keep an eye on our multidimensional research platform. Obviously, that's Elizabeth's team with Rafe and Jack, obviously a key part of that. So Elizabeth, I'm going to start by asking a quick recap. I think the last time we were talking, perhaps not on the record here, but some of the recent work you've been doing uh, on company research, we talked about a mining company in South America where you did some quite detailed work for a, one of our portfolio managers. Do you want to give us an update on what was uh, what was happening in, in that particular case? Yeah, of course. The portfolio manager asked me to investigate allegations of pollution caused by this company's aluminum refinery in South America. And the local community there was alleging that they've suffered widespread health issues as a result. And this is going back decades. So I think when you think about the overall context of the situation, what's important to know is it came as a surprise because this particular company has a generally pretty favorable reputation as a responsible corporate actor. And so that's why the portfolio manager asked me if I could explore the veracity of those claims. The project was also a really great example of our multidimensional research platform at its best because in addition to asking me for help, the PM also asked our responsible investment team to get involved. And that's for two reasons. One, uh, as a group, they have a tremendous amount of expertise, in this case, on environmental controversies, um, specifically Sakshi Ball, who is the head of sustainable research at Newton, brought her depth of knowledge on the metal and mining industry to the effort that was immensely helpful. And then also on the responsible investment team, we have a few of the team members that are dedicated to stewardship and shareholder engagement. And so they're very skilled at engaging with companies to learn more about thorny issues like this one. So having them together to work on this with me was great because we had multiple inputs from the platform, the portfolio manager, investigative research and responsible investment research. So it was a, it was a very collaborative effort. Can you summarize the sort of key takeaways from that process? Obviously, a lot of people were involved there. Yeah, absolutely. So what we found is that there is plenty of evidence, uh, actually peer-reviewed scientific studies, to suggest that the mind is indeed making people very ill. The trouble is that in these scenarios, typically with, with mining companies and the surrounding communities, it's very difficult to prove causality. The company is not the only operator in the area, though they are the biggest operator by a long shot. There's also been a class action lawsuit brought against the company on behalf of over 10,000 people who allege that they've suffered health problems as a result of the mining activity. I actually spoke with one of the lawyers who's representing the plaintiffs, and this person told me it's going to be years before we see any type of potential justice or remedy to the issue. So the long short of it is, is that it does seem that there is pollution caused by the mine. It seems that it's going to be a long time before there's a result. But from the investment perspective, my takeaways are that, number one, I think it's worth noting this isn't the first time that I've investigated a controversy related to the mining and metals industry where litigation has been taken out of the jurisdiction in question. So in this case, they are not pursuing litigation any longer in South America. They've actually brought it to a European court. And this seems to be a trend that's emerging where there may be a corporation operating elsewhere, sometimes in the developing world, and where the local community alleges mistreatment. And it's becoming increasingly common 
to seek justice in a jurisdiction where that company may have a domicile. We also learned that the way that companies respond to allegations of wrongdoing really matters. In this case, I had mentioned that the responsible investment team had engaged with management at this company. And it gave us slight pause when management refused to take any responsibility, uh, which I understand is in many ways about mitigating widespread liability, but they very much downplayed the severity of the pollution. And so when there's plenty of evidence to the contrary, and also what prompted this project was news coverage, actually, it was a long form investigative journalism piece, very well resourced, incredibly well sourced. I spoke with the with the journalists themselves, actually. So when there's that much out there in the public realm and for the response to be pretty dismissive, it isn't exactly confidence inspiring and it warrants a few different questions, which is, does this company really have a good handle on their risk exposure here, both financial and reputational? And if they're willing to be dishonest about this, or at least in the view of what we've seen in evidence, what other things might this management company not be telling the truth about? And so I want to stress that really what this comes down to for us is considering what it means to have good governance in a company. And so when it when it comes to the way that they respond to controversies, it can sometimes be very telling in terms of you know their credibility and the way that we view them. No, absolutely. And it sounds like numerous red flags are raised from all that research. So I'm glad it was uh, a, a very useful exercise and an example of you working together across the team. Well, let's bring it a bit closer to home or to, to your home now. I mean, you've been doing a lot of work recently, and obviously this is a very topical area, looking at sort of labour unions in the US and specifically one area, obviously a very important area in the US economy, the uh, the autos industry. There's been a lot of activity and union activity and um, discussion around the Detroit Three, the, the big three. Do you want to give us um, a flavour of some of the work you've been doing there and get, bearing in mind that we know that it's uh, there's an ongoing a sort of news flow situation there at the moment with the UAW? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, at the, at the time of this recording, and it's, um, it's October 26th, right now we're hearing that Ford is very close to reaching a deal with the union, and that will likely mean that the other two companies, GM and Stellantis, will follow suit. But again, I want to say that it's not over till it's over. So that's what we're hearing right now. But maybe I'll just set the stage for how, while the UAW is perhaps one of the most consequential scenarios in this broader theme of, of labor movements, beginning this past summer, I, I noticed an uptick in the number of investigative projects coming to me that related to the threat of labor strikes. And in June, actually, I was asked by our analyst who covers autos if I could do some digging to understand the likelihood that the UAW, the United Auto, Auto Workers Union, would strike at any of the Detroit three automakers in September when it was time to renegotiate their labor contracts. And my conclusion three-ish months ago after talking to a bunch of differentiated experts was that a strike was extremely likely, which now feels like the understatement of the century. But here we are. Uh, in the midst of now the longest ever strike in the history of the UAW that surpassed its previous record of 40 days back in 2019 when it was striking only at GM. But I also think, to give you an idea of just how unprecedented this is, when I began this research, I was, and very much still am, far from an expert in labor relations specific to the auto industry as well. I spoke to a few academics who specialize in collective bargaining and those conversations were very illuminating on just understanding the overall dynamics of the situation. And uh, I spoke with with one person who not only is an expert in collective bargaining, but has been studying the history of the UAW as part of the research. And uh, I asked what what I found out was a very naive question. And I said, 
would it be possible for the UAW to strike at all three? And this person said, no, no way. That's that's not how it works. Like they have a they have a system. They have a formula. They always target one company and then the other two are expected to follow suit and update their labor contracts to reflect the target company's talks. And so months ago, the people that are most expert in this scenario thought it was inconceivable that the union would strike at all three. And then that's exactly what happened. Also unprecedented is the new president of the UAW, Sean Fain. He was elected back in March and he ran on a platform that was full of very strong rhetoric that he was going to be different than past presidents. He said he was going to do his best at trying to establish more pay equity amongst junior and senior employees. He came out swinging. It was very, very strong. He's the only UAW president to ever call the Detroit Three their one true enemy. So he had to deliver on um, some pretty intense campaign promises. And the way that he has approached this strike so far, I think, is reflecting that he was very serious about what he was saying at the time. Many have described him as radical, and he's proven that mantle and taking a hard line in these negotiations. So what we're seeing here, you mentioned that he was quite a radical new sort of union leader, but we're seeing a broader shift here, aren't we? There's like a shift in the power dynamic between unions and, and the, the companies themselves. Is that something that you're seeing play out more and more since like COVID? Is there more power now? Workers seem to have more leverage, perhaps, than they did have before. Yeah, I, I think coming back actually to my earlier comments that while the UAW represents one of the most consequential scenarios in this overall movement. What I have learned is that in each scenario where there is a, a possible labor strike, it warrants its own analysis and it's come it comes down in my view to which industry we're talking about, the size of the company, its labor relations history. And most importantly, I think if there is dynamically a catalyst that leads to a strike. But more than anything else, and to your point about leverage, what I've learned is what really matters is which side has the most leverage. And so that, I think, in the case of the UAW, has been represented in the fact that, and this will be, I think, one of the key sticking points of the negotiations that will be interesting to watch, is that right now, uh, all three companies are building joint venture battery plants to expedite this transition to electrification. And so Right now, those plants are not covered under the master agreement of the union. And that's one of the big things that Sean Fain is trying to establish is membership for those plants within the union. And the companies are a little reticent to do that. I have heard that GM is is open to it. I think Ford and Stellantis are still thinking it over. But right now, employees at those plants don't make nearly as much as someone working on an internal combustion engine manufacturing line. And so what Spain is trying to establish is that these people should be paid fairly too. It is also a fact that battery manufacturing is less labor intensive than producing an inter- internal combustion engine. But when we talk about leverage, I think what the workers are saying is you have this huge push to electrification, but you also need us to be able to do it. So it is a, a push and pull. Um, both sides are going to have to give a little, when not just on this demand, but all of them. But yeah, I have a few other scenarios if you if you want to discuss them about what leverage looks like specifically in different situations. Yeah. But that's what my main takeaway has been. Yeah, no, absolutely. That, that, that's fascinating stuff. So, well, let's do that. I mean, I think another area where you, you did some quite detailed research, if we broaden this out slightly, was on uh, sort of an aerospace or a, a manufacturer within that the aerospace sector, which uh, making parts for um, for Boeing. Should we talk a bit about your work there? Again, we've seen, again, there's 
there's sort of a lever- leverage play there. Who's got the power in, in that particular um, scenario? Yeah, absolutely. So as you said, this this company is one of the main supply chain inputs for Boeing. And they had their first labor negotiation in over 10 years, which is somewhat unprecedented. It's usually it's very rare for a contract to go that long without a renegotiation of terms. And the negotiations came right on the heels of Boeing announcing that it was going to produce a record volume of 737 MAX jets. And this is, again, a key input in that supply chain to to build these planes. And so the workers realized and knew we can hold out and not go to work unless they give us what we want because they can't build those jets without us. So that was a a key piece of leverage. and, And the strike itself was, I think, over and done with within the span of eight days. And I think that if my memory serves, the company basically had to give almost everything that the employees asked in these terms. The other key takeaway in this scenario, I think really illuminates it, is that in addition to the specific leverage, and in this case, it had everything to do with the timing of that announcement and the negotiation of the contract. But in addition to that, what I've learned is that the companies that are not taking the time to understand the true needs and wants of its employee population to the ones who aren't understanding where morale is at within their employee base. Those are the ones who are caught on the back foot. And in in this case, the new contract that was offered to the workers initially featured healthcare benefits that were materially worse than the plan that they'd had for the previous 10 years. So it does beg the question, you, you know, if you're a management how could you really be that surprised when people are all of a sudden finding out that medications and prescriptions they've been taking for over a decade are no longer covered? So those things were sort of the obvious immediate concerns that were addressed right away. But I think that it had everything to do with the the leverage, but also that the company really wasn't in sync with what its workers needed. And that I think is a lesson for overall corporate governance is that when it comes to managing your human capital and understanding the employee base, taking the time to do those things can potentially mean that you may not as a company be in the position of having to basically be on the back foot and reacting. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, as, as you say, a message there for, I guess, for other companies to you know be serious in their engagement really with their workforces. And uh, I think, as you said before, I mean, obviously, We've talked about sort of knock-on effects and another staying within that sector, so that aerospace sector, another knock-on effects and what could be another potential pressure point that's come from some of your research is uh, is that a pilot shortage that may be down the line. Do you want to talk quickly about that? Yeah, yeah. And actually, just before that point, I'll, I'll mention that one, one scenario that we'll be closely watching at the beginning of next year is speaking of the supplier that is a key key supply supply chain input for Boeing. Boeing itself, actually, one of its larger plants in Washington state will be negotiating its labor contracts in January of 2024. So that, I think, will be very interesting in the context of what we've seen so far with the UAW, with the writer strike in Hollywood, uh, to understand what implications of these strikes that have already happened may mean for the ones in the future. So I, I note that just to sort of close out that scenario. Um, yeah, sure. We'll keep an eye on that, certainly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But on the pilot, earlier this summer, I was asked to look into the effects of the pilot shortage, uh, which mm-hmm. I'm sure many of you have probably read about. It's it's mm-hmm. somewhat global in nature. And a lot of it apparently comes down. I thought this was fascinating that part of the reason we're seeing such a shortage in pilots is that historically, the recruiting 
pipeline for commercial air, airline pilots who come from the military. And with a new focus on drones and AI and I guess fewer people enlisting into the Air Force than they would have in previous decades is, is resulting in this bottleneck. And so the airlines are doing everything that they can to try to remedy that problem. They've really ramped up their recruiting efforts. Uh, many of them have opened flight academies to train civilians without any military experience how to fly. And in addition to that, they are also trying to take the time to incentivize not just pilots, but other key workers like airline mechanics to entice people into that field. Because right now, so far, some of the efforts to retain pilots and to offer better compensation packages have worked. And we've seen a little bit of an ease in the supply crunch. But at the same time, what is perhaps the bigger issue for many is that airline mechanics are few and far between. It's very difficult to recruit new ones, particularly from the younger generations that have now made it clear, at least through surveys, that they they value remote work. And so that is very much a job that is not remote. You need to be in person to be fixing these airplanes. And yeah, sure. recruiting for those positions has proven to be difficult. And I, I don't have a crystal ball, but based on the conversations I have been having with industry experts, that that for many seems to be the bigger long-term concern. Yeah. Okay. Well, again, something else to watch down the line then. So certainly yeah. put some pressure in that sector. Um, Elizabeth, you've given us a great flavour of all the different ways and means that you, you know, you, you gather your research. But obviously, you're a, perhaps you're not a conventional analyst in the sense that you are in the investigative team and you work with Rafe and Jack, who are both investigative journalists in their past lives. So can you give us a bit of a sense of the different methods that you employ, you know, to find out all the information that we've, we've talked about today, basically? Yeah, absolutely. I will say it varies a lot on project to project, but in the case of my research on the UAW and also some of the other labor-related projects, that was the first time for me that I had utilized Facebook as a, as a method. I was actually looking through union Facebook groups to get a flavor of what many of its members were saying. Particularly, a lot of it was very helpful for understanding what was happening on the ground in the early days of the strike. And also, most importantly, what really mattered to them. And in the case of the the company we talked about that was related to supplying parts of Boeing's planes, those workers, that was where I really saw a lot of them anecdotally saying, how am I going to pay for my asthma medication? I've always had it covered and now I don't. Uh, yeah. That was where I was able to find out the, the kind of the granular issues that were really sticking points for them. Yeah. Um, but generally speaking, we oftentimes are looking at when it's a really about a, the specifics of a company, we are looking to speak with as many people who used to work there as possible. Oftentimes, uh, I'm looking uh, to speak with board members of, of that company, ex-board members of that company. And honestly, for me, journalists are some of the most helpful sources I have. I find that they are ready to pick up the phone because they never know if it could be a scoop on the other end, which unfortunately, <laughs> I never have for them. But I do find that Sometimes for, for our purposes, the most important information is not the stuff that makes it onto the page. So yeah. there yeah. might be plenty of elements of a story that an editor of a newspaper is going to say, okay, put this all in, take this out. The stuff that they take out is often the more helpful information for us when we're trying to get into the granular details of a scenario. Those are just a few, though. It really does change project to project, but we're always trying to be as innovative as we can. And also, I guess I would note I would note one other thing is that something we're trying to get back to as an investigative team is 
going to trade shows where they're relevant and getting mm-hmm. on on the ground and talking to as many people as we can as a traditional reporter would. And so uh, yeah. Rafe and Jack particularly have have started efforts to try to get back to doing that because it's a great way to to talk to a bunch of people all at once and also just sort of get a feeling for what it feels like amongst people of the same industry talking, commiserating, et cetera. So that is something we did a lot before COVID that we're hoping to bring back. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, it sounds fascinating and uh, long may you continue to do to do all this sleuthing. Um, I think we'll leave it there today. We'll keep an eye out. Obviously, some of those timelines you mentioned, we'll keep a close eye on the what's happening in the autos industry. And obviously, come January, some of the work, you know, some of the activities around the aerospace sector as well. So, uh, Elizabeth, it's been great to catch up again. Uh, we'll do another one of these at some point in the new year when you've got some uh, hopefully some more intriguing news to tell us. Um, yeah, but thanks again thank for, for joining me. Thank you so much, Matt. Yeah, we're we're really happy to be able to continue giving updates on what we've been working on and we look forward to the next one. Okay, we'll, we'll catch you soon. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Your capital may be at risk. The value of investments and the income from them can fall as well as rise and investors may not get back the original amount invested. Any reference to a specific country or sector should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell investments in those countries or sectors. Please note that holdings and positioning are subject to change without notice. Analysis of themes may vary depending on the type of security, investment rationale and investment strategy. Newton will make investment decisions that are not based on themes and may conclude that other attributes of an investment outweigh the thematic structure the security has been assigned to. Where material and relevant information exists, analysis may vary depending on the type of security, investment rationale and investment strategy. Newton does not currently view certain types of investments as presenting ESG risks, opportunities and or issues, and believes it is not practical to evaluate such risks, opportunities and or issues for certain other investments. In addition, Newton will make investment decisions that are not solely based on ESG considerations. Newton may conclude that other attributes of an investment outweigh ESG considerations when making investment decisions. Newton manages a variety of investment strategies. How ESG considerations are assessed or integrated into Newton's strategies depend on the asset classes and or the particular strategy involved. ESG may not be considered for each individual investment and where ESG is considered, other attributes of an investment may outweigh ESG considerations when making investment decisions. ESG considerations do not form part of the research process for Newton's small cap and multi-asset solution strategies. For institutional clients only, issued by Newton Investment Management North America LLC, Newton Investment Management North America LLC, NIMNA, or the firm, is a registered investment advisor with the US Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC, and subsidiary of the Bank of New York Mellon Corporation, BNY Mellon. The firm was established in 2021, comprised of equity and multi-asset teams from an affiliate, Mellon Investments Corporation. The firm is part of the group of affiliated companies that individually or collectively provide investment advisory services under the brand Newton or Newton Investment Management. Newton currently includes NIMNA and Newton Investment Management Limited, NIM, and Newton Investment Management Japan Limited, NIMJ. Any statements of opinion constitute only current opinions of NIMNA, which are subject to change and which NIMNA does not undertake to update. 
This publication, or any portion thereof, may not be copied or distributed without prior written approval from the firm. Statements are correct as of the date of the material only. This document may not be used for the purpose of an offer or solicitation in any jurisdiction or in any circumstance in which such offer or solicitation is unlawful or not authorised. The information in this publication is for general information only and is not intended to provide specific investment advice or recommendations for any purchase or sale of any specific security. Some information contained herein has been obtained from third-party sources that are believed to be reliable, but the information has not been independently verified by NIMNA. NIMNA makes no representations as to the accuracy or the completeness of such information. No investment strategy or risk management technique can guarantee returns or eliminate risk in any market environment, and past performance is no indication of future performance. The indices referred to herein are used for comparative and informational purposes only and have been selected because they are generally considered to be representative of certain markets. Comparisons to indices as benchmarks have limitations because indices have volatility and other material characteristics that may differ from the portfolio, investment or hedge to which they are compared. The providers of the indices referred to herein are not affiliated with NIMNA, do not endorse, sponsor, sell or promote the investment strategies or products mentioned herein, and they make no representation regarding the advisability of investing in the products and strategies described herein. Any forward-looking statements speak only as of the date they are made and are subject to numerous assumptions, risks and uncertainties which change over time. Actual results could differ materially from those anticipated in forward-looking statements. If distributed in the UK, EMEA, Australia, New Zealand, this podcast is issued by NIM and may be deemed a financial promotion. NIM is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, FCA, 12 Endeavour Square, London, E20 1JN, in the conduct of investment business. Registered in England, number 01371973. NIM is also registered as an investment advisor with the Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC, to offer investment advisory services in the United States. If distributed in Canada, this podcast is issued by NIMNA, which is availing itself of the International Advisor Exemption, IAE, in the following Canadian provinces, Alberta, British Columbia, Manitoba and Ontario, and the Foreign Commodity Trading Advisor Exemption in Ontario. The IAE is in compliance with the National Instrument 31-103, registration requirements, exemptions and ongoing registrant obligations.